Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's great to see so many of you sprung forward this morning and woke up on time. I'm sure we'll get a couple people trickling in at the end who forgot to do that. But I'm so thankful to see you here and be able to worship with you. My name is Russell. If you don't know that, I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege to continue to preach the word as we preach through Genesis. Genesis 17, you can already begin to turn there now. Like I said, we are in Genesis 17 which is just a monumental chapter in the book of Genesis and in the Bible itself. And as you can imagine, there's so much in this chapter. We are going to sit in this chapter for a number of weeks. So today we are only covering the first eight verses. We'll focus primarily on the God of the covenant, and then next week we'll focus more on the sign of the covenant. So Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you and you alone are God Almighty. You are infinite, transcendent, glorious, unchanging. You are great in power, perfect in wisdom, and sovereign over all creation. And yet, we Recognize what a miracle it is that you still condescend to covenant with and commune with sinners like us. Lord, we recognize what a privilege it is to call you our God and our Father. And we know we have this privilege only because Jesus has shed his blood in our place. So Lord, we ask in Christ's name that you would show us your steadfast love this morning by drawing us into your presence, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our world of self-esteem and self-love, I'm sure most of us have heard saying something like this. You can do anything you set your mind to. You ever heard that before? I bet you've heard it a number of times before. Maybe you've heard it from well-intentioned coaches or teachers that were trying to pump you up, or maybe you heard it from a really nice, caring grandmother, 
or grandfather that just wanted to encourage their grandkids. I know it sounds really nice. It may even feel very inspirational when you hear it, but it's, it's just not true. It's actually quite a ridiculous statement when you think about it. We can't do anything we set our minds to. In fact, we can't even do most things we set our minds to. If you haven't learned that yet, it usually doesn't take very long. Kids, I'll bet you've already learned this in many ways. I bet you've realized, kids, that there are just certain things that you can't do. Now, some of those things you might be able to do later in life. As you grow older and mature, you'll be able to do more things. But even at a young age, there are certain things that you can't do now and you will never be able to do. For example, you can't make yourself grow, can you? No matter how much you want to ride that ride at the theme park, you can't make yourself grow. You can't make yourself learn any faster. When you're frustrated in school, you can't just take a pill and suddenly learn math. It just doesn't work that way, right? You can't make it grow any faster. When you're sick, when you're hurt, you can't magically make yourself feel any better or heal yourself. Now, I know we live in a day and an age, a wonderful age, where we have medicine and doctors and means to help with those things. We even have mom and dad who know a thing or two, I'm sure, right? But there are times, and some of you have experienced this, when even mom, dad, the doctors can't do anything to help you feel better. In fact, there are a lot of things that mom and dad and adults can't do, even though we think we can in many ways. Adults, you know we can't add a second to our life. We can't slow down the aging process for ourselves or our kids. We can't add an hour, a day, no matter how much we plan, no matter how much we prepare, no matter how productive we are or how well we multitask or how much we exercise, we can't add a second to our life. Our days are numbered, and they're not numbered by us. They're numbered by God. If you haven't figured this out yet, you can't even protect your kids completely from this world. It's just not true. No matter how many alarms you put on the house, no matter how many filters you put on things and computers, our kids will eventually see the ugly depravity of this world. And this may come as a shock, but odds are they'll probably see it in you first and in us first and in their own hearts first as well. There are just a lot of things we can't do. And this is even more true spiritually, isn't it? We can't save people. Our loved ones, our friends, our family members, our kids that go astray, we can't reach into their heart and change their heart and give them saving faith and cause them to grow, atone for their sins as much as we want to. We can't do that. We can't even do it for ourselves, can we? We can't make ourselves just magically grow any faster. We can't just overpower sin or outwill sin. It just doesn't work. No matter how much and how hard we try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we will get nowhere if God is not at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, brothers and sisters, the truth is we might foolishly assume by the way we multitask and live that we are somehow omnipresent, or omnipotent, or omniscient, or pick another omni. But we will never be omni-anything. Anything. God alone is omniscient. 
omnipotent, omnipresent. And please hear me, God alone can do anything he sets his mind to. That's the only way to talk about that statement, by the way. God alone can accomplish his holy will and keep all of his promises. That's a lesson we desperately need to learn, and we need to learn it along with Abraham in this passage as well. Now, if you've been with us in Genesis, you might remember way back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham got these incredible promises when he left his homeland in Ur. And then in chapter 15, they were expanded on and ratified by God's covenant. God cut a covenant with Abraham in chapter 15 where he split the animal and passed through the pieces. Now, that was the place where that covenant promises were expanded and reaffirmed that he would have a son, that he would inherit the land. And become a great nation. And God even took the self-maledictory oath that if he broke the covenant, then the curse would fall upon him. But then after a decade, still no son. God kept many of his promises. A lot of them. He was in the promised land. He was blessed. He was becoming a great nation. But Abraham and Sarai didn't have an heir. So in chapter 16, they decided to take matters into their own hands. They decided to kind of help God's plan along a little bit, and they decided to have their own heir with Hagar, their servant. So Abram went into Hagar, and then nine months later, Ishmael was born. And now we see in chapter 17, in verse 1, that Abram is 99 years old. 99, that means from chapter 16 to chapter 17, 13 years have passed. God has said nothing. Ishmael is a teenager now, and it's now been 24 years since the promises began. And they still haven't been kept. 24 years. What were you doing 24 years ago? Can you remember? Most of us probably can't. Now, we don't know exactly what was going through Abraham's mind, but I wonder perhaps if he thought, you know, Things must be settling down. Maybe our plan actually worked. I'm sure there was tension in his house between Hagar and his wife and Ishmael. And I can't even imagine what that would be like. That's like a reality TV show in many ways. But they're in the land. They're blessed, becoming a great nation, and they have an heir, Ishmael, for the first time in their lives have to wonder if Abraham was thinking, well, you know what, maybe helping God out wasn't such a bad idea. Well, that thinking would have ended in chapter 17. Because God comes in chapter 17 to confirm the covenant he already made in chapter 15. He's going to even seal it with a sign, the sign of circumcision, which is really our focus next week. But first, God wants Abraham to see, and us by extension, that he doesn't need Abram's help. To accomplish his holy will. Or our help for that matter. He doesn't need anyone's help. To keep his promise. Why? Because he's God almighty. He's God almighty. And God almighty can and will keep his promises. He will establish his covenant people. He will save through the promised seed of Abraham. So what do we need to do? We need to trust him. We need to trust and obey. That's what this passage is about. God Almighty keeping his word and calling us to trust and obey him. Now really, as we go through this passage, I want to divide it up into three parts. 
It's a shocker, three points again, right? Three parts, but we have three parts about the covenant this week, and we'll have more next week as well. First, the covenant keeper. The covenant keeper, and please don't miss this. This is the foundation of the whole chapter, who God is. That's why we know what his promises are. So the covenant keeper in verse 1. And then the covenant promises, which are really scattered almost all the way through the passage, from verses 2 to verse 8. And then, lastly, the covenant responsibilities, the covenant obligations, both for Abraham and even for us as well. So let's look first, verse 1, at the covenant keeper. Verse 1, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now let's just stop right there. I hope you can already recognize the tremendous grace in those words. In the last chapter, chapter 16, 13 years ago for Abraham, he failed miserably, didn't he? He doubted God and his promises. Even after all those signs, the stars and the sand and that incredible covenant ceremony when he cut the covenant, he listened to the voice of his wife as she led him into sin just like Adam and Eve. He should have known better. And the bottom line is Abram deserves to be cast out from God's presence, just like Adam and Eve were cast out. He deserves to be cut out of the covenant completely. And if this covenant depended on him and his own faithfulness, that's exactly what we'd be seeing. We would see God coming near, drawing near to curse Abraham if it was dependent on him. But praise be to God, it is not. God draws near to bless Abraham, to teach Abraham, he draws near like a good father who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He comes to Abram like a good husband comes to a wife, refusing to wipe his hands even of his unfaithful bride. Well, those are the images we get way throughout Scripture, the picture of a father and a bride. But don't you see it here as well? God is showing his people, showing us as well. He's not just the covenant-making God. He's the covenant-keeping God. And he will never walk away from his people. And look at what he reveals about himself to Abraham at the end of verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai in Hebrew. Maybe some of you recognize that word. This is a very interesting name because it's actually kind of hard to translate and figure out what they're talking about. It has to do clearly with strength and power. Maybe it's God as the avenger. Quite literally from the Hebrew, it gives this idea of God of the mountain or bigger than the mountain. It implies that God is mightier than creation. That creation itself submits to him. Well, where do we get God Almighty then? We actually get that from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They translate God Almighty, El Shaddai, as God Almighty. So they're implying that this has to do with his omnipotence. This reveals that he is able to accomplish all his holy will. Or as I said earlier, he can do anything he sets his mind to. Now I'm sure this name isn't new to most of us. Especially if you've been with us in Revelation. God Almighty comes up over and over and over again. Actually comes up 48 times in the Bible. Most of those in Job, by the way, but a lot of those also in the book of Genesis. But this is the first time Abraham has heard this name for God. 
We've already had a lot of different names for God. We saw Elohim in chapter 1, the God of creation, the sovereign, the powerful God that speaks the world into existence. We saw Yahweh repeatedly, or Jehovah, this covenant-making God, this intimate name, which also highlights both his transcendent and glorious majesty, but also his nearness. He's the God of glory, but the God of our fathers as well. And then in chapter 14, we got the name El Elyon, which is God Most High, the exalted God, the reigning and ruling God. And now we get El Shaddai, God Almighty. But why is God doing this? Why does God keep changing his name or keep giving his name? Is he trying to confuse us? Does he have multiple personality disorder like everybody claims to these days? No, that's not what God is doing here. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to reveal more about who he is so his people can take the next step of faith knowing that he will come through. By the way, we do this kind of thing all the time. We have different names for different contexts, don't we? Many of you know me as pastor. You even call me pastor. Or Jason or Chad, you call us your pastors. You might even call the elders the elders or deacons. We have those names and those roles around here. At home, my kids call me dad and my wife calls me babe, right? I've been trying to get her to call me Lord for years, like that's right, but it's just not going to happen apparently. Funny enough, my students still call me Mr. Horner. I haven't been in the classroom in years, but I'll bump into them somewhere and, and they'll call me Mr. Horner. I'm like, no, no, just call me Russell. And they're like, no. We cannot call you anything but Mr. Horner. That's who you are to us. But we have these names because they call out different relationships, don't they? Different roles we play in each other's lives. And it's the same thing here for God. Describing who God is and what he's about to do most of the time. So why does Abram need to know he's dealing with God Almighty? Because in the last chapter, he acted as if God had no might at all. He acted as if God didn't have the power to give him a son. Now, he might have professed that God was able and that God had the power to give him a son, but by his actions, he showed he didn't believe that God had the power to give him a son, at least on his own timeline. And now look where he is. Abram's powerless to accomplish this covenant on his own. He tried in his own strength, and it got him nothing but problems. And now more than ever at 99 years old, him and Sarai, there's no physical way for them to have a child. No physical way for this promise to come true. But God Almighty delights in even overturning nature for the purposes of his grace and glory. He delights in displaying his sovereign power through miracles like this for his people in impossible circumstances. To show he's more than able to do exactly what he wants to do. He's the God who is able to cause a virgin to conceive. He's able to still storms and to make blind men see and to make the lame walk. He's able to raise the dead, both physically and spiritually. To put life into a dead heart like mine and like yours and like all of God's people. That is a miracle within itself. He's even able to protect his weak and weary sheep when the enemies look unstoppable. That's why I think Revelation talks about God Almighty so much. It's trying to remind God's people that he is more powerful than any enemy you're going to face. And he will even sanctify you through your suffering. God is able. God Almighty is able 
to keep the covenant, but he also will keep the covenant. You see, because he's a God Almighty, that means there's nothing that can stay his hand. There's nothing that can prevent him from keeping his word, which means his promises cannot fail. Brothers and sisters, do we live and pray like this is our God? Like we serve God Almighty? Kids, do you live in fear of what would truly happen if you lived for God, if you took out and took a step of faith for God? Were you worried about what would happen if you shared the gospel with family members or friends, what they would do to you, what they would think of you? Are you worried what would happen to your life and your reputation if you refused to follow your friends into sin? Don't you see, we serve God Almighty, more powerful than any enemy, able to overcome any fault within us. And he is with us and for us. And he promises, like in Psalm 73, verse 23, to be continually with us to hold our right hand, to guide us with his perfect counsel and afterward to receive us to glory. And he even promises that if our flesh and our heart will fail, then God will still be our strength and our portion forever. We serve God Almighty. Adults, do you believe this? Do you believe this is your God? Do you pray like this is your God, or you just, you just write certain things off as impossible now. I've prayed long enough for this illness, and it's just not going to go away. It's impossible to heal. This relationship, this marriage will just never work. It's impossible. They're too hard-hearted for God to do anything. So I've given up praying. I've given up praying for that person. I've prayed for them for years to repent, years to turn to God. They're just too hard to reach. I've stopped preaching the gospel because that's just not going to happen. That people group is just too hard to reach. It's going to take too many sacrifices to get there. Don't you see, we serve God Almighty, which means the only thing that's impossible is for God to break his word. That's it. That's the only thing that we don't even need to be worried about at all. It will come true. He will keep every single promise. Because he is the covenant keeper. He is God Almighty. We've seen the God Almighty, the God of the covenant. Let's look at the covenant promises then, starting in verse 4. And what I want you to notice as we get into verse 4 is that the promises aren't brand new here. God has already promised physical blessings of land and seed and a great nation. We've seen that since Genesis 12. But God now confirms those promises And the only new part is he kind of expands on them. He elaborates on them and gives us another angle to see how glorious these promises actually are. So look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, Abram, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I hope you can recognize this promise is very similar to what he's already had. He's already told Abram, you're going to be a great nation. But now God has stepped it up. Not just one great nation, but a multitude of nations. And we actually see this come true in the Bible as the story unfolds with the Edomites and the Ishmaelites and the Amalekites and the Midianites and all the ites that give God's people trouble pretty much throughout the rest of the scriptures. We see this happen physically in the nation of Israel. And God confirms this by changing Abram's name to Abraham. Look at verse 5. 
No longer shall you be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham. Why? For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. See, adding that last bit, it's kind of a play on words. That ham part has to do with multitude, plurality, a multitude of nations now. And then verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you, Abram. Not just nations, but kings, rulers will come from you. And we see those rulers throughout the whole Old Testament. I specifically think it's thinking of rulers like Saul and David and Solomon who ruled over the promised land and other kings were bringing him tribute as if he's ruling over the entire world there. And look at verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an ever Lasting possession. Now, we've seen a lot about the promise of the land, but now God steps it up and says, no, 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 this is an everlasting, an eternal possession. And it's not just going to be given to you, Abraham. This covenant is passed through your offspring, which is really indicated by the sign being passed, the circumcision passing through his offspring as well. Now, look, we need to stop here and recognize the incredible faithfulness and sovereignty of God to keep these promises through the physical nation of Israel. God has been the covenant keeper to keep each of these promises through Abraham's literal offspring. But I hope you can't read that and think this is all about physical blessings. I hope you don't read these promises and think, this is just about a patch of land in Canaan. This is just about a son to have because he really needs a son. These promises are so much more than just a physical blessing, aren't they? And we see that because it calls us back to the garden even. Did you see that in verse 6? Look at verse 6, what God promises. God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Where does your mind go when you hear that promise? I hope all of us go right back to Genesis 1, verse 28, when God said, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. What do kings do? They subdue it. They have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were told from the beginning to multiply godly image bearers all over the earth so that you can rule on behalf of God. But Adam and Eve were only able to multiply sinful image bearers. Instead of honoring God and reflecting God's glory to this lost world, they were reflecting a lie about God. They were dethroning God and setting themselves up in God's place. But what do we see? That promise, that dominion mandate will be fulfilled in Abraham's offspring. And who is Abraham's offspring? It's not just Isaac. It's not just Israel. It's the seed of the woman. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one who would come to crush Satan's sin and death for good, to restore what was lost in the garden, to bring us back into the presence of God, into a greater promised land, a greater city. It's not just the land of Canaan. That was just a shadow of the greater city, the greater promised land to come. Even Abraham himself knew that. That's why Hebrews 11 says, Abram looked forward to the city whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
Abraham lived by faith in these gospel promises, looking all the way to Christ through a greater offspring, a greater city, a greater blessing that comes only through Jesus. And we know that because Jesus, the Christ, is the only one that could fulfill verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Okay, what is that then? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And here it is again. And I will be your God. This is the ultimate promise for God's people, isn't it? Communion with God, a restored relationship with God. This is why this picture, this promise becomes almost the motto of God's people throughout the whole Bible. I will be your God. And you will be my people. That's what we lost in the garden, isn't it? And now God is restoring that through Abraham's offspring, which is who? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only one, the only one that could reconcile us completely to God and wipe away all of our sins. That's why Jason read Galatians 3 this morning. This passage earlier, let me go back to that again. Galatians 3, you can... Keep in Genesis here. Let me just read part of this here. Galatians 3, 7. Paul says, Know then, it is those of faith. Hear that. Those of faith. Not those of physical descent. Those of circumcision. Those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's what we see happening here. These are gospel promises shadowing Christ for Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How is this possible? Later on, Paul says this in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Who's that? Is that Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael? It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but rather to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And so Paul concludes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. You see, this covenant and this sign that we will later study has never just been about the physical nation of Israel. It's not just to mark out an ethnic people group. This sign, this covenant is all about bringing the nations into God's people spiritually. Bringing the nations that were scattered to the end of the earth back into communion with God. By faith through Christ, Abraham's true and only offspring. Do you realize what this means then? These promises that Abraham received thousands of years ago are for us. God is calling us here to faith, us to look to Christ and his finished work, to look to his life, death, and resurrection, to realize that was for us, not just for the physical nation of Israel, but for all of God's people through faith in Christ can become a child of Abraham. That also means we receive these spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. We inherit the land, not the land in Canaan, the promised land, the greater land, our heavenly home. 
We become part of God's holy nation, a nation of priests and kings that rule like they should have from the garden. Brothers and sisters, we get the greatest blessing of all. We get to be in communion with God. We get to have Abram's God as our God. And we are his people forever. If you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know that these promises, these blessings are not yours. Abraham's God is not your God. In that sense, he's only your judge. If you don't repent, turn from your sins, and you're just storing up wrath for yourselves until the day of judgment. I don't want that for anyone here, anyone. I plead with you to repent Look to Christ, look to Abraham's offspring and become a child of Abraham. So we've seen the covenant keeper and the covenant promises. How should then we respond? How does Abram respond to these incredible promises? Let's look now at the covenant responsibilities, the covenant obligations. And really, this will set the stage, especially for next week as well. Before we get into the verses, though, I want to remind you, God is not making a new covenant here. I'll say that again. This is not a brand new covenant from what we saw in chapter 15. God is confirming the covenant he started in chapter 15. He initiated. And the language is actually reflective of that here. In chapter 15, Genesis 15, 18, it says this. On that day the Lord cut, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. But then in verse 2, look at what it says. The translation's not great here, but it says, I will make my covenant between me and and you. That word make is the same word we saw when the Noahic covenant was established. It's established. It's confirmed. It's I'm going to ratify an already existing covenant. So if we're going to use the word make, it's God saying, I will make my covenant stand. I will continue my covenant with Abraham right after his sin. Now why do we need to know that it's the same covenant? Well, because God is going to give a command. God did give a command in verse 1, didn't he? At the end of verse 1, look at what it says. After God says he's God Almighty, he tells Abraham, and us by extension, to walk before me and be blameless. See that there at the end of verse 1? Now, if we're not careful, we could read that and think, well, there's the catch. There's the fine print, right? There's the condition. If Abraham's not blameless... If he doesn't walk before God in a way that honors him completely, then he's out of the covenant. Kicked out, cut out. The promises are null and void. We're used to thinking that way because most covenants we are familiar with work that way. Think of a marriage covenant. I know Chad's used this language a lot of times. A marriage covenant involves two equal parties. It's a bilateral covenant. It's also conditioned on vows, on promises, isn't it? Vowing to be faithful. When those vows are broken, the covenant's broken. And they're cut out of the covenant completely. Is that how the Abrahamic covenant works? Is that how this covenant works and the covenant of grace works? No. No. Praise the Lord that is not the case. Marriage is a covenant between two parties, bilateral and conditional. But this covenant is unilateral and unconditional. And how do we know that? Because it's the same covenant we saw in chapter 15. And you remember how that worked. Yes, there were two parties, but only one cut the covenant. 
Only one passed through the pieces. Only one promised that the curse would fall on him if the covenant was broken by him. Only one. And we know that very clearly because he put Abram to sleep. You're not involved in this at all, Abram. You're just passive. You're just receiving this. So yes, blessings will come with obedience and discipline will come from disobedience. But Abram, you're in the covenant if you trust in these promises. And that cannot be breaking. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And God has been reminding us of that through this whole passage, every single verse. I hope you've heard God say, this is my covenant. This is my promise. I alone will do this. Abram, this is not a treaty between two equal parties. No, I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. I'm God Almighty. Which you really need to know because it's going to be up to me to keep the covenant. Not you. Not you. That's the picture here. So then, how should we think about this command? In verse 1, how should we think about this command? It's, I don't like to think about it as conditions. It's not a great way to help people understand what it is. Unless you mean by that, they're consequential conditions. You could talk about that way, not necessary conditions. Or in other words, it's not, it's not something that Abraham has to do to get into the covenant or to remain in the covenant. Those would be necessary conditions. No, these are consequential conditions in the sense that they're things he does because he's in the covenant. They're fruit of his relationship with God and the covenant, not the root itself. Does that make sense? That's what this is talking about. That's why I like to talk about these as responses. These are Abram's responsibilities, his covenant obligations, and ours as well. So what are they? Verse 1, look at the end again. The first one says, walk before me. Walk before me. You see what God's telling Abraham? Abraham, we're in covenant now. I am your God. You are mine. So you live for me now. You live to please me and me alone. You don't live to please your wife as you did last chapter and follow her into sin. You don't live to please yourself and honor yourself and protect yourself as you did in Genesis 12 when you let your wife get taken by Pharaoh. Abram, you're mine. You live to please me. You live to delight me. Trust and obey. That's the picture here. I believe Paul sums it up so well in Romans 12, verse 1. And these words are familiar, I'm sure, for most of us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Please hear me. All those mercies described in the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about what? The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In light of all that God has promised and all that God has accomplished in Christ, Paul is saying, in light of the offspring of Abraham coming true and all the promises, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. That's what God's calling Abraham to do and us to do as well. And Abraham responds this way right away. Look at verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. He consecrated himself before the Lord. He fell down in worship, offering his life to God. He is living out this covenant responsibility, this covenant obligation to trust and obey and worship. And then God adds at the end of that verse, walk before me and be blameless. Now, unfortunately, a lot of us get tripped up by this. 
I'm sure many of us are reading that going blameless. Is he talking about sinless perfection? Is he saying I have to be perfect? Because I'm telling you, that ship has sailed a long time ago. And so as it has for Abram as well, haven't it? He's not perfect, and he will not continue to be perfect even after this moment. It doesn't mean blameless, sinless, perfection. That's not what this word is about. The word here, blameless, has to do with living before God with an undivided heart. The word's talking about a wholeness of heart. He's saying, Abram, live a life of integrity. Live a life free of hypocrisy. I'm not expecting you to be perfect. I know you can't be perfect, but I expect you to be repentant and devoted to me, Abram. That's what God's calling them to. In many ways, it's much like we take vows. I want to get my metaphors mixed up too much here. But you hear this vow in a marriage ceremony, don't you? Forsaking all others. Forsaking all others, I keep myself only for you. That's what this means. Walking before God blamelessly. Now, practically, what does this look like? To be in a covenant with God and to live out those responsibilities? The the best illustration, honestly, I can think of is adoption. I know so many of you have been blessed by adopting your own kids. We've seen so many kids adopted in this church, and it's such a wonderful thing. I love going to those adoption ceremonies, but our family has been blessed by adopting one. Finn, you guys know, has been adopted years ago. And there was a time those, those years ago when Finn received a new name. He became a horner, just like Abram received a new name here. He became a horner forever that day, years ago. And you know what? We were very clear up front. He can never lose that name. He can never be kicked out of our family. Sure, we will discipline him. We will call him to do certain things because we love him and we're, we're trying to be faithful parents. But no matter what he does, no matter how much he sins, we will always love him. He will always be a member of our household no matter what. He's been adopted literally by grace there. But we also made it very clear up front that because he's a horner now, Because he's part of our household, he also has family responsibilities. And that our family lives to serve and honor the Lord. We live to try to do what Abraham is called to do here. We live to please God, which means we don't act and think and live like the world around us. We don't spend our money the same. We don't spend our time the same. We don't treat each other the same. We speak of each other and of the church differently. We center our whole life around the church and corporate worship. That's part of what it means to be a part of our family. Now, living this way doesn't make Finn a horner. It doesn't keep Finn a horner. It doesn't keep him as part of our family. No, he's called to live this way because he already is a horner. Because he's part of our household. And we are a household under God. That's what it means for him to be adopted. It comes with not only blessings, but covenant responsibilities. Brothers and sisters, isn't this what has been done for us? If we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, if we trust that he lived for us, shed his blood for us and paid for our sin, and then died for us on the cross, then the Bible says we are adopted into God's family. We even receive a new name, don't we? A covenant name in the baptism ceremony. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of our triune Lord. And we receive all these blessings we're talking about. Sure, if we sin, then God disciplines us. 
because he loves us. But if we are truly his child, looking through the promises to faith in Jesus, by faith in Jesus, then we can't be kicked out of God's family. We are in God's family adopted forever. And we also have family responsibilities. We also have obligations as a child of God. And they're really even blessings in themselves as God enables us to trust and obey him. To see him as God Almighty. To keep his word, delight in his word. To walk before him blamelessly, repentantly, with a whole heart. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Abram, these incredible promises that we see fulfilled in Jesus, your son. We pray, Father, that as we have been adopted through faith in Christ, Lord, that we would live before you blamelessly, honor you with our lives and our lips, and Lord, that you would be blessed by the way that we serve and love one another. God, we know we can't do that without your spirit working in us. So we pray, Father, your spirit would change us, conform us to the image of your son so that we might honor you as we live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.